If everyone would, please turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Our text today is verses 1 to 11, the entire chapter. When you find your place, please stand for the reading of God's word. Revelation 4, beginning in verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne And will worship him who lives forever and ever. And will cast their crowns before the throne saying. Worthy are you. Our Lord and our God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We come into your presence this morning. We give you praise, honor, and glory for who you are. Father, you are our God. You are our Lord. You are our only sovereign. Father, I pray as we work through this text this morning that you would reveal yourself even more so to our hearts. Father, that we would come to know you in in who you are to a greater extent, that we would render even greater praise and worship to you. Father, teach us this morning who you are. Let us see you, Father, through this text. Thank you for this portion of Scripture. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you for the salvation that you have provided us in Christ Jesus. We give you all the praise, glory, and honor in all things. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. Last week, we had finished the Sermon on the Mount. It had been 
a number of Sundays working through that, and we completed it last week, and I pray that it was as beneficial to you as it was to me, as our Lord taught us of the nature of the kingdom, the characteristics of the citizen of the kingdom, the law that governs the kingdom, all of the things that we learned in the Sermon on the Mount. We are going to take a break from Matthew, and we are going to begin a new series and worship on earth as it is in heaven. Now, granted, there are a number of things that uh, we cannot do that they are doing in heaven because we are still imperfect, we are still sinful. But what I would like us to do as we work through this series is to understand how they are worshiping God in heaven that we may know more fully how we are to worship here on earth. And the reason being is that today it is so prevalent in many churches to have a form of worship that bears no resemblance to the worship that we find in the scripture. For many churches, they have to do the, either the, the real sappy songs that have no depth of understanding of God just to make people feel good. People are seeking after an emotion or some type of a feeling. They have to have the rocking out songs that people can get energized and feel like they're worshiping. They have the dim lights. They have the therapeutic sermon that makes you feel good about you so that when you leave church, you're just happy and joyful and you're feeling good for a time. The problem is, is we don't see that kind of worship in the scripture. There are no external things that must come into the service like that in order to provoke you to worship. And what we're going to see as we work through this series is when the people in heaven worship God, they worship Him simply because of who He is. They worship Him because of what He has done in Christ. Nothing else. There's no need to work yourself up. And, and we see uh, that's, a, that's a great misunderstanding we see today. Is that when you come in, they have to have the, the certain types of songs to provoke you to get to the place that you can worship. Folks, we should already be coming into this place ready to worship. As you behold the works of God out in creation, as you remember what it is that God has done for you in Christ, as you recall uh, throughout this past week how God has helped you, how God has comforted you, encouraged you, strengthened you throughout whatever trials and tribulations you've been through, you bring all that into the church and you render worship. Your heart should already be ready to do that. And it is for this reason that we want to steer clear of certain things. We don't want to manipulate your emotions. We want your emotions to already be there because you're already focused upon God. That you're focused already upon Christ. That's why you know, I'm sure that there have been some questions and, and what have you. And you're more than welcome to continue to ask. But that's one reason why we only do certain songs that we do. Because we want what songs that we are singing to be truthful of who God is. We want the songs that we sing to reflect truth that we find in the scripture. We don't want shallow teachings of God. We don't want to repeat over and over and over again how much we love God or God loves us. Let's bring out some deep truths of the scriptures that's going to provoke your heart. That you would see truth and that you would sing truth. 
And I pray as we work through this series that indeed that we will see all that is needed, folks, to worship is God and God alone. It has nothing to do with music. Music is great, and you can worship God with music and, and so forth. We have some guests here that have been over to John MacArthur's church, have grown up in John MacArthur's church in California. And one thing that they do that I just love, they have this orchestra that is there, and after they do some singing with the choir, some singing with the congregation, they have just one song specifically, just the orchestra playing. Just bringing out the beauty of music as it reflects the beauty of God also. Those things are great. But the whole focus of all of that is God. It's not you. And that's what we've got to remember in worship. You and I are not the focus of it. We don't, we don't manipulate the service itself to be aimed at you. Everything that we do in the service is to be aimed at God. He is worthy. We're not worthy. But He is. We're going to be in Revelation for a couple weeks. As we see in Revelation, worship that is occurring in heaven. Just to keep in mind that the book of Revelation, it is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus Christ. I want you to remember that. So far, throughout these first three chapters, John has seen Christ in all of his glory. Christ has commissioned him to write seven letters to the seven churches, and those the second chapter and the third chapter comprise those letters. But then we come to chapter 4, where now John is called up to the throne room, that he sees this, this grand vision. And he says, After these things I looked, and behold... A door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. He says that there's this door standing open in heaven, and I want you to understand something too about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is written in apocalyptic literature, so there's many symbols in the book of Revelation. There's a number of things that imagery and beast and, and all these things that you see in Revelation that are characteristic of apocalyptic literature. It conveys meaning. It conveys a literal meaning. But you have to see the symbol itself. Now, John is having this vision. He is he's getting ready to see this, this amazing vision in heaven, but first... He says he saw a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which he heard, like the sound of a trumpet, called to him and said, come up here. Now, just to back up a little bit, that first voice that he heard was indeed the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verse 10, it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then he turns and he sees the glorious Christ. This first voice that he heard, like the sound of a trumpet, said to him, come up here. 
John is being granted this privilege of seeing this amazing vision, this, this scene in heaven. He sees this door, and he is approaching this door. He is going to this place in order that Christ would show him what must take place after these things. John is able to see the future events unfolding before him. He is granted this privilege. Others have been called up into heaven as well. Others have seen a vision of heaven, rather. We remember Ezekiel having his vision, Daniel, Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 6, In the year King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. John receives this privilege as well. We are told uh, also that the Apostle Paul was called up to the third heaven. John is granted this wonderful, amazing privilege. He says immediately after this voice is called to him, the voice like the sound of a trumpet that was speaking with him before, the voice of Christ, immediately he says, I was in the spirit. And behold, the throne, a throne was standing in heaven. In the spirit is not to be taken. I hope in your translations it has a big S for spirit in reference to the Holy Spirit. This is signifying the actions of the Holy Spirit in this vision that John is able to have. It tells us of the actions of the Holy Spirit and the state in which John is in. By the Holy Spirit's power, he enables John to see and to hear heavenly sights and heavenly sounds. He enables John to have this grand vision of the throne room of God. By the Spirit's power. And John is, is taken to heaven in this vision. We have to remember it is a vision. William Hendrickson writes, When a person is in the spirit and being in that state has a vision, there is a suspension of conscious contact with the physical environment. John is given the honor of ascending to the throne room by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice something. Immediately he's in the spirit and behold, what's the first thing that he sees? A throne. And one sitting on the throne. He doesn't look around. He doesn't see who's there and who's not. What family member may be there. What family member may not be there. The first things that his eyes go to is the throne. And the one sitting on the throne. That's the focus. As soon as he has this vision, his eyes go right to the throne. And the one sitting on the throne. You know, it is such a comfort to know that God is sitting on the throne. This signifies to us, and it represents God seated on his throne, ruling and reigning his creation. You remember at this time, even in the seven letters here, which ones were going through such great persecution. You remember from the epistles of Paul what persecution that some are enduring the book of Acts, what the church is enduring at this time that John is writing. So much persecution going on in the world, so much trials and suffering. And yet John says, I saw him and he was seated on his throne. What a great comfort knowing that whatever comes to pass comes to pass because it is the will of God. He is seated on his throne. The throne is not empty. He is ruling and he is reigning even now. What a comfort it is. 
We see so many things in our nation going this way or going that way, and we wonder what is coming and what, you know, what things are going to take place, what president we're going to have. But you know, folks, our sovereign is seated on his throne, and he is ruling and he is reigning, and he works all things after the counsel of his will, and nothing occurs that is not in accordance with his will. What a great comfort to know he is seated. John begins to try to describe him. To describe what he's seeing. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone. And a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. Like an emerald in appearance. He sees a jasper stone. Sardis. He's using this, these to try to describe to us the magnificence and the majesty of what he is seeing of God. Now, granted, God cannot be described because the Scripture tells us very clearly that God is spirit. The Scriptures tell us that he dwells in unapproachable light. The Scripture tells us that he is invisible. But John is having this grand vision in what he is seeing, this jasper stone. It, it is a clear stone. This Sardis stone has a red tint to it. He is seeing these colors, and in fact, Psalm 104, verse 2 says that the Lord is robed in light. He is beholding the glory of God. There was a rainbow around the throne. We understand that within the rainbow, there's seven hues within the rainbow. But John sees this rainbow, emerald in appearance, the whole thing, a shade of emerald. Picture this magnificent vision in your mind. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. He sees this large, grand throne. He sees the light that is emanating from this throne. The clear light. The red tent light. He sees the, the emerald rainbow around the throne what a magnificent scene the rainbow itself we remember from genesis chapter 9 of the covenant that god made that he would never destroy the earth again with flood the sign between him and noah and all the created things was the rainbow and then he sees 24 thrones and he sees 24 elders sitting on them clothed in white garments golden crowns on their heads now there's a lot of debate as to who these 24 elders are some see that there are 12 patriarchs and 12 apostles and perhaps you know they represent the entire church i do think that they re, uh, they do represent the redeemed but we remember too much of what is contained in the book of revelation is from the old testament as well if we go to first chronicles 24 we see that there were 24 courses of priests within the uh, within the temple and such tabernacle that David had appointed. When we look at the patriarchs and the apostles and the names of each coming together, we see that later on in Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, rather. These do represent the redeemed. They are the elders. They are sitting around the throne. They are clothed in white garments 
and they have golden crowns on their heads. And that's one way that we understand, too, that they are indeed the redeemed. The Lord says in chapter 3, verse 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. We remember from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul saying, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. These 24 elders, they are clothed in white garments. They are sitting on thrones and they have golden crowns on their head. The very things that the Lord has promised to his redeemed. He goes on. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Simon Kistemaker says, For John, God's throne depicts the majesty, and the grandeur of the Almighty. He writes with an Old Testament passage in mind, namely the scene at Mount Sinai when God gave the Decalogue to the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. John is using the things that we see in nature itself, the elements that we see in nature in order to describe God's might, His power, and His grandeur. And when God reveals Himself, He reveals Himself in such a way that there's lightning and thunder, just as we see in the Old Testament, signifying His might, His power. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. You know, the number seven is used a number of times in the book of Revelation. It is a number of completeness, a number of fullness, the seven lamps of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, representing the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Again, some imagery that is taken from the Old Testament. As you look in the temple and in the tabernacle, you have the branched candlestick, the seven-branched candlestick. That was before the area uh, going into the Holy of Holies. These, however, that John is seeing are the blazing torches representing God's holiness. What a vision. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Again, taken from the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 23 to 25, we read of the sea of cast metal that Solomon was commissioned in order to build for the temple. It's also called, called the bronze laver. This is what John is seeing, the heavenly counterpart to the sea of the cast metal that we read of. And by the way, folks, you're going to see a lot of Old Testament stuff within the book of Revelation. A lot of comparisons from the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly temple. Just to give you some comparisons here, we read of the holy of holies in the earthly temple the throne of God in the heavenly, the seven-branched candlestick in the earthly, the seven lamps of fire in the heavenly, the sea of cast metal, the sea of glass, the cherubim over the mercy seat, 
the four living creatures around the throne, the priest, the elders, the bronze altar, the altar that we read of in Revelation 6, the incense altar, the incense altar in Revelation 8, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant in Revelation chapter 11. All of these things used in order to signify to us, representing what, we, what they had seen in the earthly temple. Now here's the heavenly temple. In the bronze laver, the priests would wash their hands and feet before going into the holy place. So perhaps this is signifying the purity of heaven. The sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Nothing escapes their attention. They see all. They are before the throne. They are around the throne. They are the guardians and the bearers of the throne, just as we see the cherubim as they are on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. They are very similar to the description that we see in Ezekiel chapter 1, and Ezekiel chapter 10, and Isaiah chapter 6. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. In Ezekiel's vision, the four living creatures that Ezekiel saw all had four faces, these particular four. John sees them individually having these faces. They are very similar. One's a lion, one's a calf, one has the face of a man, and the fourth a flying eagle. What are they representing? Well, many theologians think that they represent God's creation. Because going back to in the time of Noah, we read of the, the rainbow already. That was the covenant sign between Noah and God. And then we see these four living creatures that also represent the, the creation that were included in, in that covenant. In Genesis chapter 9. Verse 9, listen to how the Lord describes this. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with, and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the cattle and every beast of the earth with you of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the waters of the flood, neither shall there be, be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign, be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. You see in the throne room of God, you see the, the rainbow itself, the sign of the covenant. Then you see those cherubims or seraphims, whatever you want to call them, as they have descriptions of both, that they are before the throne and they represent God's creation and His covenant. One has the face of a man, like it was with Noah. Noah was a man. God made this covenant with him. The birds. You have one that has a face like an eagle. With the cattle, one has the face of a calf. With the beast of the field, one has the face of a lion. He is the covenant God. You see representatives of, of the creation itself before the throne of God, guarding it and bearing it. 
And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. These have six wings, just as in Isaiah's vision of the seraphim. They're taking from both kind of a mixture of what Ezekiel's seen and what Isaiah's seen. But these obviously have something very much in common with the vision that Isaiah has in Isaiah 6. Notice the song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. In Isaiah's vision, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. These four living creatures... As they are around the throne of God, as they see the burning torches representing the fullness of the Spirit, signifying the holiness of God around the throne, they cry out, Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Omnipotent One. He has no rival, He is uniquely holy. He is intrinsically holy. Holy is who he is. Holiness is what he does. He is morally pure. We had talked about holiness before as, as holy means that he is a cut above us. And whenever God puts on his holiness on display, we see the glory of God. It's very interesting. When the scripture talks about his holiness and compares it with his glory. I love what John Piper said. John Piper said that if you notice in Isaiah 6, they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They don't say full of his holiness. They say it's full of his glory. Whenever God's holiness is put on display for all to see, it is referred to as his glory. Whether the brilliance of light that surrounds his being or his glory seen in creation itself. That as you see the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of creation, that it reflects who God is. And that's what Paul says. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that all men are without excuse. The invisible attributes of God, the divine nature, his deity, is seen in creation as it reflects who he is, his omnipotence, his wisdom. His splendor, His majesty, His beauty. Creation testifies of it. And that's why the psalmist can say that the glory is filling the earth. The glory of the Lord. The whole earth is full of His glory. Because creation testifies of His, cre of his glory. These four living creatures are crying out. He's holy. Intrinsically holy. He is unique in His being. He, is, he has no rival. There are none that, are, that is like God. He is the Lord God. He is the Almighty. Watch this. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. Whenever the four living creatures, they cry out, God's holiness, 
the Trishagios, as it's called, holy, holy, holy. As they acknowledge his holiness, the 24 elders fall down on their faces and they cast their crowns at his feet. That gives us a great definition of what worship really is. Worship is to prostrate yourself before God. It is to kiss the hand, as it were. That's what worship is, and that's what we see them doing in heaven. They prostrate themselves before God, and it is not anything else but God himself that causes them to do so as they see and they reflect upon his holiness. This is what causes them to worship. There's nothing in here so far of anybody bringing in any external things. Guys, I'm just not feeling it. Can you tell them four living creatures over there maybe speak up a little bit? Can you tell the guys with the harps over there to play a little louder? There's none of that in heaven. None of that nonsense. It is God that they are captivated with. His glory, His holiness. And they fall on their face and they worship. For Him being who He is, that He is worthy. And when you worship, this is what you're doing. You're ascribing worth to Him. Worship means worthship. And notice what happens whenever they view His glory and they see His glory, His intrinsic glory, His intrinsic holiness. What do they do? They ascribe glory to Him. The 24 elders representing the redeemed, they fall down. They cast their crowns before the throne. Here's what they sing. Worthy are you, our Lord, and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. They don't worship because they feel like it. They don't worship because God has caused some great emotion in their hearts or whatever because of some song or some uh, therapeutic sermon. They are captivated by the truth concerning who he is. And not because of anything he's done for them yet. They're not worshiping God because he did something for them. They're worshiping God because he is worthy. He created all things. And because of his will, they exist. They worship him simply because he's the creator. They worship him because they see his glory, his, his holiness. John sees all of these things that signify to us his might, his power, his splendor, his majesty, his holiness, and his glory. There's nothing here yet of God doing anything, either for those that have already been redeemed or the four living creatures. Granted, they are in heaven. But what are they worshiping him for? Just because of who he is. How often do you worship God simply because of who He is? How often do you go and you just take time to see the creation of God and give Him worship because of the works of His hands? The psalmist does that. You can look at Psalm 19, Psalm 29, Psalm 66, 104, 148, all these different psalms that the psalmist is just praising God simply because of the works of His hands. Come and see the works of the Lord, he says. Just behold it. 
Because creation itself signifies to us, it, it shows us the majesty of God. When you're standing at the ocean and you see the beautiful sunrise coming up, what a beautiful sight God created this. And it reflects the beauty that is in the very being of God. And you see the beautiful mountains and you see the greenery and you see how it touches the sky almost. God created this. And it reflects His very being. His beauty. His majesty. We depend on too many things to worship God. Many churches do. They come in and, and they want to have these certain kind of atmospheres. They want to hear certain kind of songs. They want to hear a certain kind of a sermon so that they can feel good. What better way to feel good than to focus yourself upon God? Knowing that the Holy One has extended His grace and mercy to you. Knowing that this Holy One, the One who is omnipotent, who has all might and all power, He created you personally. Does that not make you feel good? Knowing who you are and the fact that He created you, He extended His grace and mercy to you? What more do we need? If we need more things to work us up to worship, then we got a problem. We have a serious problem. God is worthy of our worship at all times, even in our suffering, because we know that whatever suffering we endure, we endure because His strength is supplying us uh, to get through. In our times of grief, God is still worthy to be worshipped because it is His comfort that is comforting us and encouraging us to get through. We have every reason to worship God all the time. And we don't need anything, anything to try to work us up. There's no need for us to seek after an emotion through songs and, and again, therapeutic sermons. We need only focus upon God, His majesty, His splendor, worship Him, worship Him as the Creator just as these do in heaven. If we stop and just look and see the works of God, that's all we need. To worship God and worship Him passionately just as these in heaven are. We must understand to come in to this place is to come in to the presence of God to render Him praise, not us. It's all about Him, not us. We will stop there and we will continue next week. Let's stand if you would. Let's pray together. Father, we humbly come into your presence this morning and we thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you for this 
this portion of scripture that we are able to read. And, and Father, to, to just have this grand vision of who you are. Your might and your power. Your majesty. Your holiness. Your glory. Father, you are worthy of our worship. Father, we know that, that we have been sinful in your sight. Father, we have transgressed. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are able to come near you. And to look upon you with eyes of faith. And marvel at the God of glory that sent his son to redeem sinful man. How amazing. Father, we pray that indeed we would understand as we work through this series what worship really is and how we ought to worship. How we ought to focus on truths concerning who you are that moves our hearts and our emotions toward you. Father, we thank you for the revelation that you have given us through your word, for revealing yourself to us through creation as it testifies of your glory. Father, to you be the praise, honor in all things. It's in Christ's name we pray and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated.